The European Commission mobilizes 1 billion euros for the coronavirus global response. I thank you all. And today we can truly say the world is united against the coronavirus and the world will win. Hi and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and this is our eighth special episode devoted to the coronavirus crisis. In this edition, we talk vaccines, mobility and philosophy. We hear from the Transport Minister of the Brussels region on plans to encourage people to cycle or walk as we come out of lockdown. The idea there is to make sure there's enough space on public transport and that people don't all resort to using their cars. And we hear why Thomas Hobbes is being seen as the philosophical father of lockdowns. But first, let's talk to our health reporter, Gillian Deutsch. Hi, Gillian. Hi, Andrew. So we're talking just after the end of uh, this big event, which was hosted by the European Commission. Its official name was Global Coronavirus Response or Coronavirus Global Response, I should say. And, you know, optically, it looked something like a cross between a telethon, the Eurovision Song Contest and an award ceremony with people beaming in from all over the world with their video messages. But um, there was obviously a serious purpose behind it. So can you just explain what the the purpose of this event was? Yes, the purpose of this event was to raise 8 billion US dollars, which amounted to be about 7.5 billion euros, um, to finance therapeutics, diagnostics and vaccines uh, to fight coronavirus. Um, This is a total that has been uh, decided on by by some experts on on how much money actually is needed to, to combat the virus around the world. But... Everyone who's actually working on the conference has said, you know, this is really just a down payment. Much more is going to be needed afterward. And then the commission actually was successful, um, sort of by a technicality. Um, They raised 7.4 billion euros, but when it was converted into U.S. dollars, that technically makes it 8 billion U.S. dollars. So they just made their mark. Okay, so by using a currency other than their own, they managed to to reach their goal. Okay, Uh, so who took part and uh, maybe as importantly, who didn't uh, take part today? Yeah, so you saw actually quite a number of countries, mainly European countries, um, but also, you know, the United Arab Emirates, you had Australia, Canada pledging as well. Um, So so quite some big names. Um, I guess the elephant in the room or the elephant not in the room uh, was the United States, who definitely there was a very noticeable absence. Right. And the US um, tried to kind of play down the fact that it wasn't taking part from what we could say today, kind of said, well, there's a bunch of initiatives going on and, you know, we're taking part in in multiple initiatives, but they were very much uh, noticeable by their, their absence. So we talked about the overall sum that was agreed. Do we have much clarity on where that money is going to go? You know, you talked about the different purposes, vaccines, you know, therapies, other things. So do we know, you know, how that money is going to be split up and how it's going to be used? Well, some countries were a bit more specific, but a lot of the money was quite vague. Um, Some countries were even pledging uh, really just research in their own countries. It's also very notable that originally the money was going to be new money, but about last week, the commission announced that actually they're going to count any pledges that, that already were announced from January 30th, which definitely gives the commission some, some more buffer. But it's also not very certain even how the commission's money is going to be, if this is new money. Um, the big question over whether this is new money is definitely going to be something that we'll keep unpacking. 
Right. Yeah, they talked about reprioritizing, in other words, money in the kind of existing budget being channeled in this direction. And the question that we're trying to follow up at the moment is, well, if that's being reprioritized, what's being deprioritized and, and what are the consequences there, which I don't think we've we've figured out yet. But I mean, if we look at it in the kind of in the bigger picture, what was the political point behind what the commission was trying to do today, do you think? In the absence of the U.S., I think the Commission really wants to be at the forefront of, of corralling all these global players and putting them on the same page. I guess we can debate how much they were very successful, but it is very clear that, that even philanthropy, um, philanthropic organizations are starting to see the, the, that Europe is with leaders. David Hertz and Horn and I spoke to Melinda Gates last week, and she was saying, you know, that, that actually they are looking to European leaders to really fill this this void. Mm. And one of the things that seems to be being talked about is if uh, we get as far as a as a vaccine, whenever that happens, in terms of prioritising, you know, who should get it first? Is there a kind of agreement emerging on, on how to prioritise? Because obviously not everyone can get it at the same time. Right. Manufacturing a vaccine is going to be a huge problem because you need potentially billions of doses of a vaccine. And so the big question, of course, is, you know, who who's going to get this first? Um, Melinda Gates and a lot of people who operate in the global health field say it needs to be healthcare workers across the globe. Um, so there definitely are still questions about who's actually going to get access. And, and there is definitely this sub- subtext that, you know, countries are really worried that certain countries, if they were to develop the vaccine and manufacture it there, that they would just give it to their own citizens first. Okay, finally, a kind of impossible question, but it keeps coming up because I think President Trump was talking about a vaccine by the end of the year. We know that Ursula von der Leyen has previously talked about one being available uh, by the fall. Um, Is there any sense of, you know, what a kind of maximum, minimum timeline might be? Well, there have been some really promising developments. So there's this initiative out of or a project out of Oxford University in the UK, um, and they really are saying that they could get a, a vaccine developed by September there's also an initiative from Pfizer in Germany uh, with BioNTech, and, and they've just begun clinical trials in Germany, um, and they think everything's going much faster than they had actually originally planned. But even if you were to get a vaccine developed by September, um, like these Oxford scientists predict, you still need to get it approved by regulators, and then you need to ramp up manufacturing to literally millions of doses, billions of doses. So it's actually kind of difficult to even say, you know, when you get a vaccine developed or when you get a vaccine, that kind of time frame, it depends at what stage you get to. It is it is possible that we'll have some successful vaccine candidates already proven by September, but there are a lot of different things that need to be worked out to actually get a vaccine out to the global population. And we're looking more, more realistically at next year at some point. Okay, well, I think that covers it. Thanks very much, Gillian. Thank you. Now let's talk philosophy with our senior policy editor, Christian Oliver. How are you? Hello, I'm very well. Good. So uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about a piece that you uh, wrote for the website uh, last week, which came out of a conversation that you and I had where, uh, you know, it just struck me that a lot of what um, political leaders are having to deal with now I mean, they certainly touch on philosophical questions. You know, they're having to weigh up very um, different ideas and interests, you know, in terms of the public health, uh, the damage to the economy and everything that flows from that. And so, you know, it struck me that um, people might be looking for a kind of moral or philosophical framework, you know, through which to try and reach these decisions. I don't know if we've seen much evidence that politicians are actually doing that. But so we talked about this a bit and... um, you thought that Thomas Hobbes was um, the guy who was possibly most relevant to what's happening now. Can you just 
tell us a bit about Hobbes, you know, who he was, when he lived, what kind of world he lived in? He did indeed leap to mind as the guy who might be Mr. Coronavirus, uh, in the sense that he touches on many big themes of what our world is like, what, what God is, what the sort of materialistic forces that make up a world. But he drills down to something really interesting, which is why we obey, why we consent to do things, which makes him you know, seen as a real heavyweight political philosopher. Because what he's doing is he's growing up in a world in which people live still with ideas like the divine right of kings. And he starts to build a different framework for how does politics work? Why do we obey this leader? And while many earlier philosophers have looked for ideas of what's this big idea about what's good, what's wrong, what's our duty, he pulls it all back to a really radical concept of preservation of life. And within that framework of what we need to do to get out of this he, he sees very brutal, rather bleak existence of our lives without political control, where we'd all be sort of killing and eating each other. We give over our powers to a big political command centre that preserves our life. Right. And what was his kind of time period? What was he living among? What was the world of Hobbes? So exactly that. He was living in a, you know, a wild period of change but one marked by extreme violence and war. He was famously born at the same time as the Spanish Armada. And his joke, of course, was when his mother, so scared of the idea of the Spanish were coming, went into labor with him. He said, fear and I were born twins together. He lives at the time of the English Civil War, the Thirty Years' War. And this sense of we must stop this violence, we must stop this religious craziness sort of underpins everything that he's he's writing about. Right. And so his big idea is is Leviathan, right? Can you just explain what what that is, how it works? So he illustrates the contract in a very easy way and it's probably best described by the picture that he worked on for the the frontispiece, the front of the book. And the image is of a countryside and a city with this enormous monarch figure, a sovereign, looming over it with a sword and a bishop's crozier. And when you look inside the figure looming over the countryside, it's full of all the people and the faces inside there. It's like a wicker man structure of everybody is inside. And the peculiar idea of how Hobbes is imagining the thing that rules over us is that we're all bits of it. Fundamentally, this thing does a deal with each individual person. So it has the whip hand in a light. You can't rebel against it. Once you've agreed to let this thing rule over you, the Leviathan, your ability to get rid of it is decidedly limited. But you've all done a deal with it. So these little tiny people are all packed inside the body of the, the Leviathan. And that is how he is imagining it. What he's quite careful not to do is not to say it's the people, as if there's one deal between the leader and this big thing, the mass of the people, because that can become more problematic. That's easier for them to get rid of you to rebel. Okay, and so and others have also come to this conclusion that he is very symbolic of, of what we're doing now. He's kind of, in some ways, the sort of philosophical father of the lockdown. Can you just explain why? 
I think it's 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 more of an issue that he is talking about the terms under which we agree to do things that restrict us. Mm-hmm. And there might be things that um, you could feel that are impinging on your what you might see as your more natural liberties. But he has at this point said, you have already done a contract. You have given these authorities that rule over you, and which is kind of an obvious case in the societies wherever we live, whether it's in the US or Britain or Belgium. Uh, once you've agreed that they are taking the responsibility for keeping you alive, then you do what they say. You fall into line. You have very little flexibility for saying, oh, but I don't really like this, or I prefer to do that, or I have a separate right to do this. You don't at that stage. That is the Hobbesian view of the uh, of the world. Right. So in a sense, in his world, the people aren't sovereign as we would regard them today. The individuals make a deal. They agree that there is a political authority over them. And if that authority decides to kind of change the rules or change the terms, that's fine. That's up to them. And it's not, it's not up to you to complain, basically. So... Um, this is the idea that's emerged at the moment that obviously the state, uh, which kind of, you know, is meant to guard over us, has taken on these extraordinary powers. It, are there any kind of critics at the time of, of Hobbes or afterwards critics of Hobbes who might also be relevant today in terms of saying, no, this is the wrong approach or, you know, the lockdown uh, does not make philosophical sense, if you like. I mean, are there any who would take a, a different view, who took a different view of, of Hobbes? I think there are lo- I think there are loads of them throughout philosophical history, and basically, if you look right at the sort of the real beginnings of philosophical history, and you get philosophers like Plato, for example, they're really looking for these examples of no, hang on, we ought to be defining. We need to cut through facts. Um, you know, Hobbes is a real realist based on the real world. They're guys who are looking at like, what's this big idea behind this? What is right? What is moral? How do we look at these these arguments? And that persists through so much of philosophy. So there's a whole philosophical tradition of saying, no, wait a minute, Hobbes is just way too pragmatic, way too based on a thing that you know is not looking at this loftier ideal. And even now, I mean, there were some interesting remarks that I, I put in that story from Wolfgang Schäuble who discusses exactly these concepts. So he's president of the Bundestag in Germany, really sort of, you know, storied, hardcore German um, former finance minister. There he said, look, all this stuff, very Hobbesian, preservation of life is way too absolutist. We need to look at some other notion like human dignity. Mm. Now, of course, Hobbes wouldn't have much time for human dignity. He said, well, well, what is that? How do you define that? What is the process of getting there? But, you know, I'm sure a guy like Kant definitely would have more time to discuss, well, okay, let's try and build up some ground rules. Let's try and build up some philosophical framework of working out what that is. Hobbes is kind of really kind of bleakly pragmatic in some of this, you know, thinking. And a lot of philosophy is based around way more you know, idealistic views of how do you work out what's right, wrong, what is human dignity. Yeah, well, that's another big topic which we could probably get into another time. But I did think that the the Schäuble uh, interview was really interesting. Um, And he, I think, was then going back to the German constitution, which talks about dignity being an inviolable right, uh, but not, but saying it doesn't say there's an absolute right to life, there's a right to dignity. And that, of course, opens up a whole big debate, which we could get into another time. 
you know, I won't pretend that what I was writing about Hobbes was an absolute, you know, brand new discovery because I found that over the last month we've had people certainly started off in the US saying, hang on, this is Leviathan's big moment. We've got big government is back, big healthcare expenditure is back. And I found that quite an interesting notion to get into about whether this idea of Leviathan has in some ways been historically abused in the sense that I think we really need to put Hobbes back as a guy of his times. And I guess healthcare is a classic example because a doctor would be way more likely to kill you than cure you in the world that Hobbes knew. And his sense that all of this at the moment, government preservation could lead to so much big government, big expenditure, big expenditure, state aid, that would be very weird to Hobbes. And Hobbes really was very focused on, let's stop the wars, let's stop the religious conflict. And beyond that, he was a bit standoffish. You know, you could certainly argue there's something rather liberal or tolerant about Hobbes's view of what he wanted his society to be outside that real big trade-off of stop the wars, uh, which is really what he was thinking. Right, but it's become, so in a sense, Leviathan has become a kind of bogeyman of, for big government. Yeah. It's easy to take Hobbes's thought and to say, because you've made this big trade-off for safety, that leads to big government. Whereas it's a bit unclear from his world whether that could even have begun to dawn on what he was thinking. And he was way more anti-war and anti-priests. Okay, right. Well, I'll leave it. Uh, I don't think we'll get into discussing the pros and cons of either of those right now. Um, Christian, uh, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Now let's switch from philosophy to mobility. The Brussels region is taking measures intended to make the EU capital more cyclist and pedestrian friendly when people start going back to work. Let's hear more from mobility reporters Hannah Cochalier and Joshua Pozaner and from their interview with the region's transport minister. Here's Hannah first to explain more about the changes. Brussels regional government last week said that it's building 40 kilometres of new cycle paths and that it's removing car lanes and parking spaces to make room. By boosting bikes, the government wants to prevent commuters from crowding metros, trams and buses when lockdown restrictions are eased and prevent people from taking the car instead. My colleague Joshua Passaner and I spoke with Transport Minister Elke van den Brandt about her plans. These reforms that you're announcing now, do you think they're going to stick? Are these only for the pandemic crisis or are they forever? On the one hand, it's a temporary measurement because the situation is, is really specific and we try to react on this, this specific situation. So the idea is that we need to give more space to people so that they can keep social distancing in the street. Um, but on the other hand, we know that what we're doing, that is um, sharing the public space in a more equal way, giving more place to pedestrians and cyclists, it is something that is needed in Brussels also in the long term. And we have a mobility plan that is doing exactly that in the long term. So the, the vision on having more place for cyclists, having more place for uh, pedestrians, for people, is something that we're doing on the long term. But these measurements are really made for, for this situation, are really specific uh, for the moment. So if you look at, for example, the bicycle lanes, some of them are temporary, but of course we want to make them uh, permanent whenever possible and whenever they are a good success. Is this an example of local governments that were already very ambitious on cycling infrastructure taking advantage of the crisis to make changes they wanted to make anyway? 
I don't think taking advantage is a good word because everybody is touched really hard by this crisis. Nobody's happy that we're going through this crisis. But I think what is important is that we, if we come out of the crisis, we just we don't just go to business as usual. That we we start and that we reboot in a way that we do it in a different way, and that we make sure that starting up again the society is starting up a bit different as well. And specifically, on, on if we talk about mobility, um, there's a huge risk that we're going back to a car mentality and making sure that instead of seducing people to use their car, we're going to seduce them to, to go by bike, to go by foot, and that all those measurements really go into this model shift uh, in that direction. Brussels is, is the commuter capital of Europe, many people say, and I just wonder, Minister, if, if you would say that that has to stop a car use and people commuting into Brussels needs to end. But it's good that people come to Brussels to work and, and we're happy to be the European capital and being the capital, the economical heart of our country, of course. But the way that people come to Brussels really needs to change. And there's several aspects to do so. On the one hand, it's the, the mode of transport. So convincing people who don't go, come from a long distance to go by bike, to go by foot, to use public transport once this crisis is over and public transport is, again, in full capacity. I think that's one part of it. Also explain to people that now if all learn to do some teleworking that we might continue doing so. I know when schools should reopen, it would be easier because having children out in teleworking is not so easy. But if we can learn all the use those techniques we're learning now in the coming years, it would have a huge impact on mobility. If one or two days per week we work at home, to make a huge difference on the traffic jams. Also, uh, making sure that we, we have more uh, spread out hours, that the peak hours are not always at uh, everybody from nine to five, so that we, we spread out the time. I think if you take in, in all those kind of measurements, we can really make a model shift. And it's important for, for Brussels for, to make the city a more um, livable place, uh, to make sure that we can give more place to pedestrians, to cyclists, to people to meet each other, to talk, to do a little, to buy an ice cream and to sit outside, to do all those things. I think we need to rearrange the public space, and that's an important Thanks to Josh and Hannah for that report, and that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We also encourage you to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review, and you can always send us feedback directly to podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back on Thursday with another regular edition of the podcast, but until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. (laughs) 